Hi, this is Coffee Talk, and I'm Walter Smith III. Hello, and welcome again to the official podcast of the Guitar Department at Berklee College of Music. My name's Ian, and we are back with another episode of Coffee Talk for you. This week, we're joined by saxophonist Walter Smith III. Having played with folks like Mulgrew Miller, Christian Scott, Terry Lynn Carrington, and Herbie Hancock, he's played at Carnegie Hall, the Kennedy Center, and appeared on over 100 recordings worldwide. Professor Smith now teaches at Berklee College of Music and is the chair of the Woodwind Department. As always, a lot of this content will also be available on YouTube, and we have a ton of other great content on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, so give us a like and a subscribe on whatever platform you use. Here's our interview with Walter Smith III. I'm Kim Perlack. I'm the chair of the guitar department at Berkeley College of Music, and welcome to another Coffee Talk. We're joined, as usual, by our assistant chair, Cheryl Bailey. Hey, Cheryl. Hey. Got a AeroPress coffee today. Ooh, nice. And uh, our senior coordinator, Ian Steed, is with us, as usual. Hey, Ian. Hey, all. I'm at home, but I got my Berkeley mug. Nice. And our special guest today is chair of the Woodwind Department saxophonist Walter Smith III. Hey, Walter. Hello, hello. I think I'm out of place. I didn't realize I was actually supposed to be having coffee here. Well, I mean, you know, on the Water. on the audio ver- version, no one can see you, so. Oh, I just admitted to something. <laughs> um, do you drink coffee, Walter? I do. Um, I am, I guess, relatively new to it. I'm about <laughs> 10 years in, so. How do you take it? Uh, now just black, you know, no sugar, no cream, no nothing. Didn't start that way, but that's where I am now. Why did you change? Why did you go to black coffee? Cause I did that too. Um, I started drinking coffee. I just turned 42, started around 31, 32. Um, I was trying to get off of energy drinks, which I, you know, I had up to that point. Actually, 30, 31, 32 is a big year for me because it's also the first time I had peanut butter. Um, but so I started peanut butter and coffee at the same time. But the coffee was, you know, it was half of a cup of coffee, but like full of uh, coffee made flavored creamer. So, you know, like the mocha, the peppermint mocha, I think I started around Christmas time. So that was really big for me, the pumpkin one. Um, and then, you know, I was kind of defeating the point of, replacing the energy drinks it was mostly i was just drinking cream so i just worked towards getting used to it and now i'm fully there wow wait so what's the story with the peanut butter did you believe you had like an allergy or something or no i just i think a lot of things when i was young i just they were everything was a referendum i had it once and i thought it was disgusting and i never like i avoided it forever and it was the same with coffee I wanted so badly to go to Starbucks when I was in high school because everyone else would go there. And I went and was like, what should I get? And I think it was a latte was the first thing I had. And I was just disgusted by it. So I did hot chocolate. I would get the cup and have the hot chocolate in it and pretend like I was part of the club, but not really. So same with peanut butter. I don't know why it was, I think when we had kids, when they started eating it, I was like making it and I was like, oh, we give this a shot and I like what I found. I like that. I like that you have conviction and openness. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, only took 20 years. <laughs> you know, it's funny because we were talking, uh, you know, we talk about coffee just to kind of get the conversation rolling and because that's the name of the show. But then Ron Savage, our dean, who's now like the head of academic affairs at Berkeley College of Music, um, he had this theory that he started to talk about about how he felt like the way he thought about coffee was the way he thought about everything, including music. And he went, he really made a case for it. And so uh, since then it's been kind of interesting to see, like, does the way you approach coffee, does, is that just a one-off or does is there some kind of uh, parallel that you can draw? 
Well, I, yeah, I mean, the way that it is now, I've moved to that. It's like simplification um, yeah, and trying to do that with everything. So like where it started, where it had to be all these specific flavors of cream for me to be able to actually do it. Um, and now I can just go anywhere and get coffee. And I've had, you know, I'm not like a snob about what kind of coffee. And I've had some of those ones where like there was a place in, in Tokyo one time where somebody I was on the road with was like this was, oh, it's Tuesday. If we go on Tuesday, that's when the real barista is there. And he's the one that makes espresso shots and he pours between 10.45 and 11.15. So we waited in line and did this whole thing. And it's, it tastes like coffee to me. So now I've like, it's just simple. Any place, anywhere, just whatever you got, I'm, I'm down for it. Yeah, I mean, that comes up a lot, too, that, I mean, you spend quite a bit of time on the road, even though you all are really based at Berkeley, and having, like, a simple routine probably really helps, right? Because in, yeah. in the world, then you're okay. Yeah, exactly. So that's the goal with every part of life. Um, many things I've not yet achieved that, but by the time I'm done, I will have. <laughs> that's great. Um, one thing that a lot of students have asked us to talk to ask is about first days at Berkeley because a lot of people who listen to this are are entering. And you had first day as a student, and then you had a first day later as a chair, um, and you're also teaching and and doing a lot of different things at Berkeley. So, are there any things that stood out to you, either first impressions when you were here as a student, or later when you came back? Oh, first days. Yeah, there's a lot. Um, as a student, I think it was just that excitement of, um, you know, my parents came up to drop me off, but then they stayed a little while and like wanted to go in a cafeteria and, you know, like do that stuff. So it was just like waiting for them to go so I could like, you know, do all this, you know, you know what I mean? Like everybody was like trying to play or go do this, go do that. And I just wanted to like do that, but I was kind of tied into like going to whatever target or Kmart to buy towels and with them and you know, all that kind of stuff that you don't really want to do. So um, that was my first day's experience. And then like staying up all night and getting a chance to play and meeting roommates. Uh, that was an incredible, part of it, um, both of my roommates had never, um, like they were asking me, I have to take my placement test and it says I need to know these scales and like, what are, what's a scale? And as a guitar player, it's like, oh yeah, well this is, I was like showing him, I wrote it down for him and he's like, well, what are, what is this? And he like didn't read music also. So it was like one of those things I was like, oh wow, this, there's like a whole thing here at Berkeley I, I didn't know about. Um, and then as a, coming to work here, uh, the opposite effect, like not knowing anything, not knowing what to be doing. You know, like I think the first day that, that I was on campus, I kind of just, I didn't have an office either. I was just like, what should I be doing? Where should I go? Like just utter confusion. Um, yeah, so those are the <laughs> those are the two first day experiences for me. Thank you for helping the guitar players early on in your tenure as a student. That bodes well, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we should say that to you. Yes, yes. So. I mean, you had a collaborative uh, interdepartmental spirit even back then. So that's Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, but to that end, also, like some of your classmates, or maybe not classmates, but people you went to school with at Berkeley, it's really true that you have played with them in your career, like throughout your career. Mm -hmm. And that's something that, you know, we always tell students, like look around at the people you're making friends with and the people you're meeting when you're a student, because down the line, you may be playing with them. And I think some students believe us and some people are like, yeah, 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 you know. You're, but that really happened for you. Um, and in fact, one of the people that you went, you were in school with is now a guitar faculty member. So can you talk about that a little bit about like making friendships and then keeping them as a person? Yeah, of course. Um, when I came to Berkeley, uh, actually two people from my high school also came, uh, bass player, Mark Kelly, who now plays with the Roots and um, Kendrick Scott is a drummer that plays with a lot of people. He also is on faculty at Manhattan School of Music. Um, 
but we all came from the same year uh, from Houston up to Boston and we played together throughout our entire time in Boston and still play together now. Um, a lot of the people, not only people that I played with while I was in school, I think the person you're referring to is Matt, yes? Yeah, Who's Matt in the department. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, Matt and um, a lot of people that were around during that time, um, not only were those relationships like most of my first touring opportunities, like I met Matt playing with Christian Scott, uh, who was also a student at the time. Um, and we did a couple tours and a bunch of recordings. It was like our first time recording on a major label. Christian was signed to Concord and that put us in like experience with all those kind of studios. We got to do fantasy studios in Northern California. And, you know, a lot of my first festival things were with uh, that band and, and a lot of those people that are that were playing in that band I still see and play with all the time um, but also beyond people that I played with sound engineers um, mm. a lot of those people I still see around the world um, uh, they're they pop up when I, I lived in LA before coming here and they would pop up in every studio around town I would go in to do something kind of random, it would be a movie thing or like a TV, whatever. And they would, there would always be somebody there. I'd be like, yo, wait. And they'd be like, yo, wait, what? did you go to Berkeley? And it's like, yeah, yeah, exactly. And you just kind of reconnect with people that maybe you knew during that time, but hadn't seen in a while. And they're, they're all over. Um, I just played in France two weeks ago with Lionel Lueckett, who was also in school during that time, incredible guitarist. He now lives in, um, Luxembourg and you know like all these people they it's the school um, uh, connections I mean really I think is that's like the most important thing you get out of school the teachers the classes the degree are one of the you know that's the that's the tangible thing that you take away but to me the student body that you are around that you get to work with and who are going to be your peers and who are going to influence what kind of stuff you have opportunity to do when you leave that's that is like the real bonus of going to berkeley as opposed to going to um you know maybe a smaller school that's in your town uh or in your like a state school or something this is like where everybody from around the world kind of congregates and you get a lot out of that you know the two guitar players that you i know you worked with who are berkeley people matt stevens and then Lionel, who you just Lionel lewecki so if you haven't heard them and you're listening, go listen to Walter, but then go also listen to these guitar players. Um, one thing that I know about them from meeting them and working with them a little bit in different ways is how great they are to work with and how cool they are. They're really nice people and they're really yeah. easy to work with. And I'm wondering, like, when you met people when you were younger, some of these people that you've worked with as you're older, did you sense like what are the things that stood out to you about them as as people or as musicians and then did you feel like when you met them again as an older person did it make sense to you like okay that person's still doing what i'm doing yeah i yeah of course i think a lot of the like even even if we just named those two matt and you know they were um great musicians that had a lot of um I think the thing that I was drawn to with both of them is that they had influences that were strong, that were not um, the same as my influences or the same as the guitar players that I would hear on recordings or that I would, was playing with um, all the time. They had something different about where they were coming from, which made, um, even, even in terms of their sound, it just made it put like a new spin on things. And then also, like you said, both of them were very nice people. I don't think I was um, during that time at all. And I remember um, that was like one of the first things that I learned when I got to school. Somebody, uh, Aaron Goldberg, who was an incredible pianist, um, he was playing with Joshua Redman at the time and they did a concert at the BPC. And I remember um, getting the chance to talk to him afterwards. And he was, you know, he was asking me a couple questions and I was like, oh yeah, I don't really like that. I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like that. You know, I was going through everything that he said. I was like, yeah, that's not, no, I'm not feeling that. I don't like that. I don't like that. You know, that kind of thing. And he's like, man, in the last like 30 seconds, you've just dismissed like 
80 years of the history of the saxophone or something. And he's like, you know, that it, he, he just kind of like, kind of laid it out for me. I was like, yeah, you probably should really think about how you're going about this and all that kind of stuff. And I really did think about it. And that was early on in my time at Berkeley. Um, and I think it really kind of, kind of set me straight with all that kind of stuff. And then I started to realize the people that I was around that were doing a similar thing. And mine was at least not about people that I was in front of, but, um, you know, like classmates and all that. It was just about like strong feelings towards recordings and stuff that I didn't care for. But, you know, I love this stuff over here, but not this and that, you know, those kind of opinions. But then I started seeing it in other in classmates and other musicians, how they would be like putting other people down and what they did. And then I started to have like that aha moment of like, oh, OK, yes, I don't really want to be around this at all. And maybe that's something that I should think about for myself. So in that first semester, I really um, started to think about stuff and then, you know, like what I was just mentioning about Lionel and Matt having different influences, start thinking about, is it just, I don't like it because it's not the same as everything else that I listen to. And is there something unique in that? And then, oh, I don't have anything unique because I feel like I'm trying to be so streamlined and, and start to think about, oh, why don't I like this recording? Because it doesn't sound the same as what I, you know, grew up liking, um, I should expand what I'm listening to. And then all that stuff kind of led to um, discovery of different musicians, different stylistic things. It led to me saying yes to things that I, I ordinarily would have not wanted to be involved in um, just because I would dismiss it, you know, uh, right off the bat. So um, a roundabout answer to your question, but the big part of it, you know, everything that they embodied, they kind of had that when I first met them and I didn't appreciate it at first, but as I kind of grew as a person over the first year uh, of school, um, I started to really um, see the importance of those things and, and want to see it coming from myself. I think it's really cool that you're willing to be honest about that. Because I think it's something that a lot of our students struggle with. Like you're you're in a competitive environment by nature in some ways, or you can feel that way because you feel like, well, maybe there's not a lot enough work for everybody, or there's not enough spots. And how am I gonna like push myself ahead? And can I get ahead if everybody else does? And at the same time, I think what you're finding is what we know as older musicians that the people who do have a lot of longevity and do develop their own unique sound, often do it by being the best collaborators and being the most open. And um, we noticed it this last week, we had guest artists here who are alumni who actually said something really cool. They said, you know, I think it's starting to flip at Berkeley in the, at least what they saw in the guitar department that now it's cooler not to be competitive with each other. It's, it's cooler to be supportive. Yeah. And, um, I think that's great. That's what I want. I know that's what Cheryl wants. I know that's what you want. And mm -hmm. I think it's really cool for people who are feeling like that's harder for them. I think it takes a lot of courage and bravery to be open and be supportive of other students and really focus on trying to find what's unique and focus on being collaborative and, and pushing yourself as opposed to focusing on being competitive. It's a little easier. Yeah, absolutely. It's very cool to hear that you went through your own kind of flipping it for yourself when you're at Berkeley. That's really cool. Yeah, I think I think that, you know, and just following up on what you were saying, like when people are out here working and have and they have a career and longevity and all that kind of stuff, it ends up to me being that that's maybe the most important trait that they have. It's not it's not about, you know, obviously they all have something to say musically, but that is always such a subjective part of it. You know, like there are people that play a million notes and it's incredible. And there are people that play like three notes and it's also incredible. It just kind of depends on who's calling them and what they're being called for. But the other thing where it's the person and do you, do you enjoy being around this person? Is it someone that you can invite into a studio for the next three days while we're recording? And it's going to be, everyone will be 
comfortable, you know, like if it's a stressful situation or, or if you're traveling and you don't trust that this person's going to make to the lobby call or catch the plane or any of those kind of things, like, um, or they're going to be mad the whole time. Uh, you know, it, it's not worth it to, to call that person because there are other people that you know that maybe they don't play, maybe they play 999,000 notes instead of a million. Um, but they're a much nicer person and, and more, um, fun for everybody to be around. Um, and then even the way they interact with promoters and people that are coming to the concerts, like all that stuff is important because it all kind of reflects on you if you're the leader of the, of the group. So, um, you know, you want to surround yourself with those kind of people and that that's first and foremost. Could you talk a little bit about your sound on, there are a lot of saxophone players and I think people would say, I think truthfully that you have found a distinctive sound that's yours. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about like what you care about in the way you sound and the way you play and kind of how you came to that. Um, well, kind of the same way as, well, thank you for saying that uh, I don't agree, but um, it's kind of the same thing as like the coffee conversation. It's about simplifying everything. Um, I'm not someone that ever tries new equipment. And I think longevity on one set of equipment will help anybody to kind of discover something because the all the different situations that you're in and over time and you know like you've played every type of room every type of microphone every sound thing you know recordings all that kind of stuff and you get to hear it over time and you really get comfortable with it and it feels like an extension of you um i think that's that's a huge thing it's just not switching like every every student in the department, we invite um, companies to come in so they do have a chance to try stuff because a lot of times they haven't tried before and they'll open their case and it's all it's like there are like 50 mouthpieces already in their case. I'm like, my God, please just go back to your room and choose one. You don't need to try any, any new stuff like that kind of thing. Um, but I think that's that's the biggest thing is is um, not switching equipment, playing something for a long time, and then listening a lot. Um, and I feel like if you if you're practicing and playing, then your ear will be drawn to that. But it's it's an over time kind of thing. What do you think about <clears throat> about the way you play? Is there something like the way you kind of over time? Do you have a sense of like the way you structure your melodies, the way you care about when you're building a solo are there certain things that you care about um yes uh it's always it moved over time you know it kind of um changed uh but now i'm super reactive i guess i would say or um let's see how to say this i used to feel like i could just show up and play and then if i wanted to like play i could just play a lot of stuff and now that feels like I'm it, like doing that would be like almost like a caricature of myself. Like I could see it happening. So now it's so specific. Like if everybody's like hardly doing anything, I am not able to do more. I have to be with that moment and play in that scenario. Um, when I'm playing my best, I'll say that um, there are moments where you lose focus, of course, and then find yourself you look up and it's like oh wow i shouldn't be doing this you know that kind of thing but trying to be in the moment as much as possible so um really being affected by the people that you're playing with the the venue the sound the audience all those things um playing a bigger part um and i think over time i've gotten more and more comfortable with that because there's a high chance it's like 50 50 that it will be really bad <laughs> at any moment uh because you're trying to do to create something um, but when it's not, it's, it's memorable to me, you know, in a way that, oh yeah, we like, this is like actually improvising. That was not something that I did before. Um, so those, those kind of feelings after playing are, are what I'm going for, or it didn't really work out, but we'll keep trying, you know. So, okay. I'm going to throw it over to Cheryl in a minute, but as a person who came to improvisation late, like through classical music, I always am really impressed when you all are talking about 
those, okay, I'm in the moment and then oh, this didn't work. And so now I'm going to try this and, you know, hopefully this will work better. And I just think it takes a tremendous amount of courage to be that flexible in the moment. And I'm wondering, like, was that just something you feel like you developed over time or like, what does it feel like in the moment when you're changing gears? Like, I think a lot of students are thinking about that. They're just afraid sometimes to be creative or to listen and, and respond to what's happening because they feel like, okay, I have to play what I know. Yeah, more. sure. You know saying? No, it's, yeah, it's, it has to be over time because part of it is that, uh, the only way you can be really comfortable doing that, you have to also like grow as a person and not worry about what other people are thinking the same way. Um, I always draw back to this one moment. Um, I was playing with a trumpeter, uh, Ambrose Akamusari, and we were doing a album release party at the Jazz Standard in New York. And we did a, we were doing a week and then we were going to Europe for like four weeks after that. So this was like, uh, we had done the recording, but this was like the first time really playing that set of music live. And I think Friday night or something like that, late set, uh, Wynton Marcellus came and sat in the front and, and uh, you know, I was in the back and I walked to the dressing room to go get my instrument out before we played. And I saw Wynton there and I was like, great, I'm going to, on this one song, I'm going to do, I'm going to like play like chewberry but like also like really modern and do this stuff and he's gonna love it. it's gonna be killing watch just just you wait um and then of course it was terrible um and it was like the last time that i feel like i had something in my mind that was gonna do going into it meanwhile the song is like it's mixed meter it's like a bar of three eight it's in nine for four bars and it goes to five then two bars of three eight again you know like all this stuff is happening and i'm like putting, you know, superimposing something that I'm going to do in order to please this one person that's here, because I think in my mind that I know what he might like to hear or what might impress him when in reality, uh, you know, that what, what would that, you know, like, even if I was able to pull that off, maybe he has no interest in hearing that. Maybe he hates Chubert. Maybe he hates, saxophone altogether maybe nothing that you know maybe he's not even listening to me he's on his phone for a minute you know like all these things that um that i was kind of coming to terms with in that moment and then i thought it just like it was another one of those moments where i was just like okay so anytime there's a review anytime there's this anytime there's this you can't please everybody you're playing and you gotta if you just do what you do then there will be more sincerity in it and it'll be the best version of what you can do and then over time, people will become more familiar with that and people that don't like it won't even come and the people that do will, you know, it'll like work itself out in that way. But by actually trusting what you do and going that way, um, that's kind of the, the only way to proceed. But it takes a long time, even though you know that in theory, when you're young, it's like you said, you have to feel you have to like prove something like, OK, I have to show that I'm able to play these chord changes before I don't play them. And then rhythmically, I should think about varying. And, and none of that has to do with what's happening while you're playing. You know, it's it's like the anti-music. It's just, um, it's just you know, speaking from a script or something, which, which you can always tell. You know, some of those emails that we <laughs> are assign our names to where it has that thing to it. It's like, yeah, no one would ever talk like this. And whoever's reading this knows that, um, but, uh, there it is. Yeah, Still. dear insert name here. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I am so personally excited to. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. As we welcome our three hundred and ninety fifth class to the fall, you know those kind of things. It's like yeah, I would never even think to say that. Um, so same same musical equivalent. Yeah. So Cheryl, I'm gonna throw it over to you. Um, what's on your mind for Walter? Wow. Well, a lot of things. I mean, I love what you're talking about, about openness of music, because that always comes up, you know, someone you run into somebody and, you you know, a non-musician probably, and they go, oh, what kind of music do you play? And the only answer that I ever could come up with is good music, because, uh -huh. you know, when you when you really are playing music or on this level, 
you see it's all good music or you know it's not i play funk rock or i play himalayan goat herder music or what you know what i mean like that doesn't really mean a lot so it's really great because you know i think a lot of our younger students are coming in and they're just so attached to this is this is what it is right yeah. Yeah. So i'm really good about that but that's cool kim that was a great question um because there's a couple of things i wanted to talk to you about or get your views on and that whole thing about being in the present moment because you know and also that you, you made me think of some i had a moment like this when i was a young younger player and i lived in baltimore and i played with this fusion band and they were friends with dennis chambers and they said dennis is going to come by and he's going to check he, he wants to check the band out so the first set i felt like and i was like dennis chambers is here and i was like yeah okay and then we took a break and then and i looked around and he said oh dennis isn't here and i was like oh man that was a great set <laughs> we went outside took a step outside the club and there's dennis chambers standing there and i'm like Dennis Chambers, what are you doing here? And he looks at me and goes, I came here to hear you. And I went, oh, the next set was a flat line. <laughs> because I was so self-conscious of that thing. I was like, why oh, wasn't he here the first set? So, yep. anyway, but that, that's that all checks I'm, out. <laughs> <laughs> so it's great to hear that. And I think it's great for our students to hear that too, about those moments. Um, but I wanted to talk to you about this because we actually, I played a gig with you a couple months back and you, that this is exactly what blew me away about your playing is that focus. And you did a duet moment, a kind of a moment kind of emerged out of the music where you're playing duet with the drummer, Marvin Smitty Smith. And it was, it was like, you created this force field that just went, and I could feel it coming from there. And it went out. It was, it was really like, I couldn't move. And I was really transfixed how you developed your solo. So you, you definitely know how to do that. So I want to try to tie this into this other thing that I've been thinking about that impresses me about you is you, or, or let's put it this way. A lot of times I talk about to students about practicing it. And I say, well, anyone that you see that's successful as um, they could be a musician, they could be an athlete, they could be an artist, they could be a public figure, they could be your mom or your dad or your whatever. Somebody in the community that is really great at what they do. It's not by accident. You need to know how to organize your time and focus yourself into these things to achieve that. So I'm thinking about this with you, with that ability, your ability to focus like that, but also you are very successful. You're very prolific in all the recordings you've done, all the artists you've worked with. You're a chair of a, of a department at Berklee College of Music. And you know, you keep all these things and you do them all at a very high level. So what's the secret, man? Oh, uh, <laughs> I paid it. I feel like I've found a new publicist here. Um, <laughs> I think also. Well, I could read that to me. I could put that in my school. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know. I think um, I. I believe it's the same thing that you're doing and that Kim is doing. I think it's you know all of these things. You treat them the same. It's just a different direction that you're looking when you're doing it, right? So if you're looking at what you do in your role as a chair it's in order to play and to play on high level you're detail oriented right you're not just looking at g7 and thinking gbdf right there's like okay what articulation what dynamic rate what all these things that you're thinking about and they happen without you you're thinking about them but your practice and all the stuff that you've worked on and listened to is informing the decision that you make as a reaction in that moment and it's the same thing here all the stuff we're talking about what do you look for? what what makes successful people what what kind of attitude do they have oh they're open and this kind of thing so when a student comes to you with a with an issue that could be a really big deal you're not shutting them down or you're not like make, quick to make a judgment that is going to create like a a, you know, some kind of barrier between the two of you for the rest of their time during the school. 
while they're at Berkeley, it's you're looking at everything from the same perspective. So it's like, oh yeah, well, let's find a solution. And oftentimes, even just having that attitude will result in something. And it's the same thing musically. Um, being in the moment, if you trust, like when Smitty's playing, if and Bruce dropped out in that thing and he's playing a lot, I trust that what he's doing is gonna, you know, I respect him as a musician. I'm gonna go where he's going and not not where I wanted to go, which was like to in the solo or something, you know, no, now we're here and now this is what we're doing. So it's the same being able to roll with whatever happens in, in your job, because I think that that's like the that is what this job is. It's like <laughs> there's nothing on your calendar and then there are 50 things that come up back to back to back to back. And each one of them could take you 10 hours or you could line them up so that five of them are resolved with one thing. And then, they're, you know, like just always organizing those things. Um, and when you leave for the day, everything's in a spot where you can either walk away from it or it's done, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and it's the same with your practice routine. You know, if I if I have a tour coming up, and it starts next Saturday. I worked on this music two months ago, right? Like I, that was when I did it. And then this week I'm refreshing so that, but I already know it because I did it beforehand, not because I need three months to learn it. It might've only taken me an hour to do so, but it's about the time spent with it and you get more familiarity. And also I don't know what's gonna happen in between then and, you know, they could be any number of things. Um, it's usually never something that happens with me. It's everything else around me, family stuff. We have two kids. It's all kinds of things It's school. It's stuff that happens in the world, like all those things that you have to account for. So um, you're always just kind of working in advance of everything so that when, when it comes up, you're there. So if it's music, if it's your job, if it's recording, if it's a tour, if it's, you know, something for your own stuff, writing music, whatever it is, you're always kind of, we're always working on something, um, but finding, finding a way to make it feel fun to you. I don't know, like the chair job is fun to me in a way that, um, that I think teaching was really fun to me when I was like a full-time faculty member and all those things feel very much like some of the PlayStation games that I play or also some of the best gigs that I've done. You know, they all have a similar um, thread running through them. You know, I I think that's right on about the idea of like, that you do everything with the same integrity. And I think that's, we've just, we're talking about this before we jumped in here. Cheryl and I were talking about, how do you impart that to students? Because I wanna know what you think, because we have students that will come to us, as you know, and they'll say, well, I don't really need to focus on my private lesson because I'm an MP&E major, which I think is crazy because to be a producer, you have to be a great listener and a great, how do you, if you can't listen to yourself, like how could you listen to others? But the same thing is true. Like I was teaching an ensemble and um, I, I had a guest teacher come in. And when I came in, I, I came in a little later, he was working with them separately. And I was listening to them play parts that they were unexpected to them and they didn't sound great, but he didn't know them, you know, I mean, like he didn't know if, if they were going to be great or not. And I just said, why did you choose to sound bad? Why didn't, why don't you just take the material and play it with an awareness so that you knew it would sound great. And the answer a lot of them had was, well, it was just an assignment and I didn't know if I was going to use it. Like, and I was trying to get them to say like everything you play Exactly. I want to have the awareness, like there's a certain amount of this that I can demonstrably like play great. And then I could go home and work on the other stuff. And, and I was asking them like, why did you show us? Why did you show me that you can't do it? Why won't you show me what you can do? But I think there's a level of like ownership and awareness and responsibility that you have to take. And, and how do you help students like find that in themselves? Like, what are you doing? Well, I mean, to me, everything comes with honesty, um, mm -hmm. which I feel like a lot of times, um, at least in my experience, especially in higher education, there isn't a ton of, um, it's, it's, um, it's sugar-coated honesty. Um, mm -hmm. Where to me, it's just like, no, that's, that's just not good. Like, 
I, you know, anytime that I feel like you don't have to always give 100%, I should just invite people to the sound checks that I get to do with people. It's like the sound checks oftentimes are better than the concert, um, which is always a bad sign for the concert. But, um, but that happens. It's like people are, you know, when they're checking the mic by themselves, what they're playing is demonstrating such a high level of musicianship and you strive for that at all times. And it's the same when you're having a meeting with a student, you don't want to kind of like, <laughs> you know, like act like you don't know what you're doing, but I don't really know how the declaration process works, but you'll find it on the, on the website. Like you could just look, it's like berkeley.com or ed. I don't remember what, you know, like you could be that way, but what's the point? Like just know what you're supposed to be doing and then do it well. And I think that, um, that ends up to me being so much of what any private lesson is or a class. It's never fully about the material. It's about getting that point across that, like, whatever you think this is professionally, it's more than that. And anyone that you think is kind of like, ah, eh, you know, like we look at people in the NBA, they, oh, he just sits on the bench. That last player that never even gets in the game could go to any court in the world and destroy everyone there, right? Like, it's like that kind of, it takes that to even be in the conversation and people don't see that or they don't believe that. And sometimes, you know, I think through demonstration or um, just kind of impressing that fact on them or asking them something that you didn't ask them to prepare um, as would happen in a gig or a performance or a recording situation, um, kind of helps to impress that on them. Um, people that always do the minimum, you know, kind of pushing them to to try to do something that they weren't asked to do um, for themselves, you know, not even for, for a grade, just why don't you want to, <laughs> why would you only learn two songs if that was what was required of you? How long did it take you to do that? Why not learn four? You know, like that's, um, that's a good habit to be in, um, learning music for things that you don't necessarily have a connection to. I always tell them about that. Like I learned all the recordings of bands that I wanted to play in, not because I thought that that would come to pass in any way. It was just like music I liked and I loved it and I really wanted to be in it, but I can't control that part of it, but I can control being able to play the stuff that, that I actually really am into. Um, you know, all those, all those kind of things. But I think it starts with just being really like, brutally honest um <laughs> in a in a way that i find has has worked for me um but i don't know i i there's no real answer to that it's because i think even that is sometimes a turn off in certain situations um it can feel mean um which i'm okay with because i also feel like that's part of this in a way it's coming from a good place but it seems mean it seems in a you know like not inappropriate, but it seems like not the right thing to say at, the, at that time. But um, I just feel like that happens all the time uh, outside of the, the schoolhouse. And when they're playing away from classroom, from a classroom with their peers, people say things and um, learning to deal with that kind of energy and not let it kind of consume you. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I guess I'm just mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I always thought that about you. I thought you were yeah. Yeah. Um, I can be mean too, but it's like sometimes I hide that with a smile, and I think that makes it more stealth. Um, yes, it does. I don't smile ever, so pretty good. So, but I, I said we said that through the class um, yesterday, the Monday class. Like, look, you know, I noticed that some people were uncomfortable, and I said, like, this is great. If you're uncomfortable, this is good news because you should be uncomfortable. Like you've uncovered a, a thing that you do that causes you to fail. Mm -hmm. And the good news is did it in a classroom and not yeah. on a So that's awesome. So now like really sit and take some notes. Like what caused you to fail and why did you run straight to, into that wall? And what could you do differently to not do that? Mm -hmm. Especially when you're under pressure, because I could see some people, they felt more and more under pressure when we were, honest with them like you're not making it that's not yeah know, or that's not good and then you could see them retreating like i'm gonna make this your fault like that person was a jerk to me they made me feel uncomfortable they you know 
But like maybe part of all of this is, or for sure part of this is being comfortable when you are uncomfortable and saying yeah. like, how can I shift gears now and make this a successful moment? And yeah. that's going to be part of everybody's life. I think no matter what avenue you go into, whether you're in performance or production or business or music therapy or anything. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I, that's, that's like the, that is the, that's the whole thing. It's like not just getting in that mindset, everything we're talking about, like not, not shying away from it because you, you are not able to do it as intuitively as you are something else, but like, like actually actively working towards that thing. And whether or not it comes up again in a class or professionally, it will, you know, down the road, it's gonna, it's, it's gonna be something that you'll have to deal with at some point. So not shying away from it. So Walter, you've taught students at a varied different levels of their development. You've taught like young students and then you've taught all the way up through like professional level students. And now you're a chair. Um, are there things that you really feel strongly should be included in someone's foundational skills? Foundational skills. Um, maybe foundational is the wrong word, but like, what do you think are like core things that people should be working on or people should know about on the instrument? Yeah, I think the more and more that I'm, um, that I have th thought about this over time, I feel like some level of creativity early on uh, is really important. And that comes from exposure to live performance. If we're talking about performance uh, oriented stuff, live performance, um, and also just like not just listening to the same type of uh, approach. Um, all of my favorite musicians that are adults all seem to have come from that kind of scenario where there was nothing pushed on them early on. Um, I came from that, but I some something led me towards uh, seeking the stuff that I was supposed to be doing. Um, but like in high school, our director did not have us start with um, you know, Benny Carter, and then move forward incrementally. Um, because I think if that is your whole approach, sorry, my printer decided to print what I asked it to print three hours ago. <laughs> That's part of being a chair. <laughs> there, there's some forms you're going to have to find, you know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, like when I was in high school, I loved Kenny Garrett and Branford Marcellus and Joshua Redmond. Those were like my starting points for really getting into playing. And there were people that I could go see live. And there were people that were making new albums, which was really exciting for me. But I was, I heard all of their music before I ever heard anything of Wayne Shorter. You know what I mean? But if I did it by the book, maybe I wouldn't even be sitting here now because I would not have had that same excitement towards it. So I think it's that, and when I say creativity, it doesn't mean anything specific, just like a creative way of finding what you kind of resonate with and really making that everything until you get to the point where things need to start being addressed. Um, I think also a focus from the starting point of rhythm as everything is, is like the most important thing towards improvisation or reading or feel or any of that kind of stuff. It's so creativity in terms of what you're exposed to and then focusing on rhythm with everything. So time is the whole, whole thing. That's good. Ian, that's kind of a setup for you to jump in. So yeah. So, uh, there's a question that we ask every, uh, episode of this, which is, um, What's something that students should be asking that they might not think to ask? Um, let's see. How much money should they be making? Um, I think that's a, a big one that, especially in the performance world, I, I kind of end up bringing that up with them because I'm like, you want to do this? You have no clue. Like You've heard people say, there's no money in this. Like You have no clue at all what what people can make or what a standard fee or what you know what to expect in that way and I think that um without 
holding somebody to showing you their tax return, it's okay to ask those questions. And I think that people are more than willing to kind of let, you know, pull back the curtain on, on all that kind of stuff. But I think that's a big one. That's really great. I think you're absolutely right about that. Especially when there's all of this fear around student loans and rent and all these things. And, and very rarely do I ever hear, like whenever I travel and go to schools, I really expect sometimes, like I was just at one of my alma maters and I expected people to say like, do I really need to do a doctorate? You know, like, but no one asked me like, while you're doing your doctorate or after you're doing your doctorate, how did you pay off your loans? Like, were those mm -hmm. jobs that you got, did they actually pay you enough money? Did you have to work outside of music? Like, how did you mm -hmm. make a living? And I thought that was really interesting because, you know, when you're a student and you look at your teacher, there's like usually a gap there of about 10 or 20 years or 30 years, sometimes 40 years. And it's like, what did that person do in the nebulous times? Because you don't just show up one day as the chair of the woodwind department or a person who's making a Grammy nominated record. You have mm -hmm. to hustle in the middle. And that I found, I always thought as a kid, that was the most interesting to me and nobody ever mm -hmm. talked about that. So I think that's really cool that you're encouraging people to talk about that. Yeah. I just tell my students to buy crypto. Well, that, that would have turned out yeah. to be a disastrous. Uh... <laughs> no, disclaimer, it's not true. Carol not true. Bailey, <laughs> Carol Bailey lies. Like, also, I don't believe that you said that. The price of Bitcoin just in the time that you've said that has dropped thousands of dollars. <laughs> Cheryl. Yeah. Also, Cheryl, your real story is way more interesting. So they should ask the real the real story. But that's cool, Walter. That's great. That's great. Um, <clears throat> so Cheryl, what's on your mind as we're kind of coming to the end of our coffee? Or do you have some more things you want? No, I mean, no, I mean, because we could talk about this stuff because I'm always fascinated about this stuff, you know, being in the moment and improvisation and all that. Um, but I really I love all the things you shared again about the the openness. And also, I, I mean, what I'm really getting from everything that you're saying is about being purposeful and having conviction in what you do. You know, I mean, that's like finding that balance between being open, but, you know, whatever that you are doing to do it with integrity and do it all the way. Cause, and also in the, came up in a previous conversation is if you fail, you probably, you know, particularly as, as a student, you, you come in and show your flaws, you, you'll learn more, <laughs> yeah. you know, you know, you learn more by that. But anyway, I think those are really great things for um, all of our listeners to think about. And um, so thanks for sharing those ideas. Of course. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You know, maybe because this is in part an educational program, we should give them a few answers to that question. Like, not necessarily how much money did you make, but when you got out of school, Walter, um, first of all, I think people might be surprised to know that you were a music education major. And, yep. uh, and that, you know, I just want to say for the record, hey, everybody, like those of us who teach, who write, who record, who produce, you can be a top level performer and do all of those things. And you might have to do all of those things as a top level performer to make a living. Mm -hmm. Just throwing that out there. But what, how did you pursue your career right after school? Like what are some of the jobs and gigs that you had out of school before you got kind of a major, a, more of a foundation? Sure. Well, I was lucky because I went, I had a scholarship to go to Berkeley. Um, so I went for free. Uh, and did the music ed degree. Um, I also had a scholarship to go to a master's at Manhattan School. Um, I was going to move to New York no matter what, and that just kind of gave a little more purpose to the to the trip, and it helped to, <laughs> mainly to narrow down the area that we were looking when we were looking for apartments, um, because you could end up living anywhere in New York. So we ended up on uh, in Washington Heights on 146 and Broadway, uh, which is right close to Manhattan School. But when I was in the city, um, you know, my focus shifted to, you know, when I was at Berkeley, it was like finishing that degree. It's really um, at the time, I'm sure it's even harder now, but it, it was like there was so much stuff to do that had nothing to do with me playing saxophone. Um, so I felt like I had to 
practice and do even more. I was in so many gigs so that I felt like I was still keeping that at the forefront, even though all day from, you know, eight to four, I was like in a barbershop quartet or playing trumpet, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, so when I got to New York, it was, I was in school, but for the first time in my life, I was like, I don't really care about this degree in the same way. I am here to be in New York and I'm going to prioritize anything that has to do with playing. So if somebody calls me for a session and it's like a rehearsal in Brooklyn at 1.30 and I have a class during that time, I'm going to Brooklyn, you know, uh, I send my regrets to, to Manhattan school, but I will be in this thing. And that was kind of the thing. And then whenever those, those relationships proved to be everything for me. It was like the people that I was like playing with and all that. They, none of them were necessarily doing a ton of stuff at the time, but it, it, it didn't take long. During the two years I was there, they all were on major gigs or touring or doing their own things. And I was a part of all that stuff. And it was just like all peers and getting to play at all the venues around town and starting to travel a lot. Um, so. I did not, I didn't actually see my transcript from Manhattan school until I applied for this chair position. And that was when I realized that I had done pretty well until the last semester. I think I got a D um, kind of across the board there, uh, but that's all in the past now. Um, but, you know, it, I ended up getting a degree and, and I also got everything I could out of New York while I was there. Um, so that was, that was the starting point for me and those relationships and all that. I only stayed in New York for those two years and I moved to Los Angeles. And that has been those relationships and that time that I was there really have laid the foundation for everything that I've done since then. It's that was everything for my whole career, every, you know, connection, every opportunity that went well and everything that kind of advanced things. Um, and then, you know, like all the stuff we're talking about, your reputation, are you somebody that can read? Yes. Are you somebody that can read from concert? Yes. Like those two things randomly were why I was getting called to go play with people because they were writing music and then they would call me and I could just show up and they could hand me a lead sheet and I could play it. And then, oh, we have a gig tomorrow night. Uh, so-and-so can't make it. Can you cover it? Yes, of course. You know, like those kind of things and then playing and then your own time and, you know, all those things you start to build that part of your relationship. Plus, I mean, reputation plus you're playing and that kind of put it all in place for me. Um, so that was that was my um, approach to kind of being there. Walter, am I right that in LA you taught in the school system, like the public schools, and then you also had adjunct college jobs at one point? I didn't teach in the school system. I was adjunct at the performing arts school there. So yeah. kind of like the arts academy here. Um, and actually we sent several students to Berkeley over the years and then also the Juilliard and Manhattan School. There was that was maybe one of the most fun um, teaching situations that I've ever been in because it was everything we're talking about, you know, like you get people when they're kind of they know stuff, but they you can like help to guide them towards stuff. And a lot of them are like now out there playing, not not saying that I did that, but they're, they're they like stuck with it and they're like professional musicians in New York, which is kind of incredible. And then by the time you applied to Berkeley, I seem to remember that you were doing some crazy commutes and teaching at different part-time. Yeah, right? I was, I was full-time at Indiana uh, University for three years. And I had, I would commute there from LA. I would kind of go there and then go out and then come back and then go home. It was insane, but I did that for three years. So the reason I said all those things is because I think it's helpful for people to hear that like you're doing all kinds of things. And at some point, some people are like, why are you doing that crazy commute? That's nuts. Or why are you teaching younger kids? That's not what you're meant to be doing. Or why are you doing all these gigs when you could be like creating a home base? And then when you look back, like if you look back now, all of that makes total sense because your chair job and all the gigs you have now is like, this culmination of all these different things. Mm -hmm. And it looks like it was meant to be, but in the time that you're doing it, it doesn't always feel that way. And you just have to go with your gut, right? And and kind of- Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's like all these weird 
decisions you make along the road and they keep changing what what's possible you know moving forward um and then i look at people that that have those kind of like somebody like um i guess i should have thought about this before i said like somebody like terry lynn for instance like i feel like she is in a place where it, from where it started, like playing drums, like she could probably like never touch another drum and like go around speaking and doing, you know what I mean? Like all these other opportunities and career paths that open up, which are kind of incredible. I'm laughing because she was just on Coffee Talk. We just had Terry Lynn and she said the same thing. That was her oh. opener. She said that oh, okay. she terms <laughs> the fact that like, she doesn't have to play to make a living and she doesn't have to teach to make a living. And how does that feel? And what does she want? Right. Amazing. It, it is amazing. And, and I think like, that's so important for people to know that, that your career and that your life in music takes on all these different forms. Um, you know what, what I always love when we had Guy Van Duzer on the show a long time ago, but he said something that really stuck with me. He said, when you're, when you're young and you're going through your career, it seems like zigzagging. But when you're at on the other side and you look back, it's it's a straight line. Mm -hmm. But you can't know that till you get to another place and you see that it was actually that connection. That connection went straight to where you are. Yeah, that's totally true. And you know, like where when I went to school, um, I went on scholarship. I got a doctorate, so I went to three different places. And but it was never like a full like pay your whole life scholarship. So there are always loans. And then like, as I was kind of like paying off my loans and working, I remember like a lot of friends, we always had this, this kind of sense that like, okay, this is my loan job. You know, this mm. pays my loan payment. This one pays my rent and my food. This one is like what I hoard away as a squirrel in case A and B like fall away. And, and then here's one I'm just doing for pure fun and pure mm -hmm. art and, and, you know, like all of those decisions that you make are all valid. And the funny thing to me is that some of the ones where I thought like, listen, this is kind of out from what I care about. That one, when I look back was like, oh, you know, like being a producer and a studio manager for three years, that is so helpful to me right now. Or like mm -hmm. when I like produce my own records, it's really good. Yeah. Or when I'm in like the BPC and they try to mic my guitar and I'm like, no, no, no. You put it over, here. <laughs> you, yep. you know, and you move yep. it over here and I want these hanging mics and like all that, or like teaching something that was liberal arts oriented, like music history mm -hmm. or beginning guitar, which I did for years. And people said, why are you doing that? Why are you spending time? And I loved it because it taught me how people learn, exactly. you know, and I actually yep. found quite a bit of joy in it. And, and I think so many students, I hear them already boxing themselves out. Like, I don't do that. Mm -hmm. I don't, uh, that's not like it's beneath me, but they kind of have that vibe, you know, or it's out of fear. Like, I don't need to spend time on that because I'll never use it. You mm -hmm. just don't, you never know. Yeah. I think that's, that's the biggest thing. You never know. And you also never know what you'll enjoy until you do it. You know, I thought I always wanted to teach the highest level musicians only. And now I don't want anything like that's like the last thing that I want to do. Like people that are like have a lot of questions and have things that you can easily identify that are points of emphasis, you know, all that kind of stuff is like the fun of helping someone through it um, as opposed to trying to convince someone that already is like kind of fully formed of things that you might see that would help them in their thing, you know. So you're, you're completely correct in everything you so. said. Yeah, I mean, the last thing I'll say about that is that you also never know who you're going to meet when you take those gigs, because I yeah. took a festival gig called National Guitar Workshop, and I did it for more than a decade. And um, I was always like the, you know, the the one classical person, you know, for however the level was. And then I also taught beginning guitar there. But that's how I worked with Cheryl. And that's how I worked with like Pat Metheny and all these like and Jim Hall and like name great jazz musician or great rock musician that's how like oh yeah we were at the workshop and da 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 da, da because they were all getting a kick out of that too mm -hmm. and um and then you know like if someone's gonna go to like a summer camp and sit in the heat with people you know that person's cool yeah yeah <laughs> um, 
know that like our faculty who were at the workshop with me and Carol, like you went, oh yeah, give that to him. He'll be fine. Like he lived in a terrible dorm for three weeks with an eight in a bad cafeteria. Like he'll be fine, you know? Yep. Yeah. So yes, cool. absolutely. Ian, what's on your mind as we're wrapping up our coffee? I mean, that was all like great conversation. Um, I did particularly dig when you were talking about um, just, you know, trying to like uh, shove something you've been working on into a solo. And it's just it like, you know, uh, really hammers home this thing that, you know, we hear all the time. That's like, you know, when you work on something and you're in the moment to like really pull it off is like maybe not always the best idea. Right. And that like when you were talking about a concept, right? Like I'm going to work on this rhythmic thing or I'm going to work on this like particular substitution. Like that's like really the way that you think about practicing, right? But like mm -hmm. in the actual improvisation of it, it's like that thing might not come out and it might not be the moment for that. And instead, yeah. even though like if you have this gig and you're thinking I'm going to work on these particular concepts for this particular tune that I'm going to improvise over, it might not work out for that thing, but then it might show up somewhere else where you weren't anticipating. So even though yeah. you were thinking about practicing it for this other thing, that it might come up somewhere else. But yeah, that yeah. was a great, yeah. Absolutely. I think also to tie into that, it's like that feeling of where you always want to avoid doing something twice, you know, like, well, I, I did that, you know, before. And, and then everybody that you listen to, that you actually love like has things that they do <laughs> over time and then getting comfortable with like oh yeah that's just like something i do um and i would rather just do it all the time if i like how it sounds rather than this thing that you're talking about where you're like okay i've been practicing this thing can i get it to work <laughs> over here now or maybe a week from now maybe i don't know you know it's all it's all big big uh mental exercise man versus self or person versus self, I should say. And I haven't revisited those things in a while. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, well, Walter, thank you so much for having coffee with us and giving us a lot to think about. We appreciate it. Thank you. you for having me. Yeah. And next time I will actually have a big Berkeley cup with full of coffee. Um, we, we'll get you no a creamer. guitar department. Guitar department coffee mug is what you need. Oh, if you're willing. Okay. You're willing if that to, exists, if that exists, I, I want one. It okay. does, and we'll get you one. Um, and in the meantime, thank you, Ian. Thank you, Cheryl. Um, we're going to hang out and talk about less fun Berkeley chair business, but we'll see the rest of you and be with the rest of you on the next Coffee Talk. Cheers, everybody.